From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official health care provider of the Florida Gators. Happy New Year and welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. As the calendar has turned to 2018, the men's basketball team has once again found their stride, getting out to a hot 2-0 start in the SEC on the strength of more eye-popping shooting. On our first show of the new year, we'll dive into hoops, football, and more with FloridaGators.com's senior writers Chris Harry and Scott Carter and catch up with women's basketball head coach Cam Neubauer as his squad pivots to conference play. But first... Confidence is once again high for Mike White's team as they've rolled off four straight victories, including Mike White's first win against Vanderbilt and a demolition of 11th-ranked Texas A&M in Aggieland. To kick off this week's roundtable discussion with Chris and Scott, we asked the former to break down Florida's recent resurgence. Well, in the case of the uh, Texas A&M game uh, Tuesday night, Adam, I mean, obviously it was, it was shooting the basketball. Um, I mean, I made a couple references in a story I wrote from College Station about how that looked an awful lot like the team that uh, we saw and were very enamored of, not just us fans, not just us employees, but a nation. The Gators kind of caught their attention, an attention of a basketball-watching nation with what happened in Portland with uh, their ability to hit shots out there. And that kind of went missing when they started to be more closely guarded. I tell you what, but uh, you go into Texas A&M against a team, the only Formula Ford could have had for beating a Texas A&M team was to hit shots uh, from the outside because they weren't going to post guys up. They don't have that kind of ability with their interior offense. But my goodness, when you can go in there and uh, right out of the box, hit 10 of 16, three in the first half, then hit seven of twelve in the second half, equal the career or equal the the season high with seventeen. Um, I'm talking. I'm just looking down the the statistics. One, two, three, four, five, six different guys hit threes. Uh, one, two, three, four, five, five different guys hit at least two. You had Igor Kolachov who had that eight game run where he was seven of thirty seven. He goes five for six. Keith Stone who'd had one double figure game or think two double figure games over his last maybe. I don't know, uh, since since last January, he goes for 18. He goes four for six from three-point range. He totally changed how Texas A&M was going to guard Florida. I mean, they had to send Robert Williams, the SEC Defensive Player of the Year last season. They had to send him out on the perimeter, which opened things up for Chris Joseph to drive the ball, for the Gators to make extra passes and, and such, and just carve up whatever Texas A&M was trying to do. But it all started with the ability to make shots, and Florida was probably as gifted as anybody in the country when it comes to that. Now, having said that, they also uh, answered it with uh, playing some really, really good defense on the interior. As much as we want to talk about three-pointers, Kavarius Hayes had his best wire-to-wire game, not even close, made all four of his field goals, wasn't hunting for anything. He took what was there. Uh, some baskets found him. Seven rebounds. He blocked five shots. He had four assists, which I think was a career high. Just a great game for him. 33 minutes of high energy. Best game of the year, I think, for Florida. Uh, now, having said that, Texas A&M was missing their three best guards. And so uh, Florida had a scouting report where they were going to pack it in and dare those uh, inexperienced uh, lesser guards to try to beat them. They couldn't. That's what scouting reports are for. Uh, I know I got hit with Twitter by some Texas A&M fans saying, we didn't have our three best guards with Florida. 
doesn't have a 6'11", 260-pound center who's maybe the best defensive low-post player in the country um, in Johnny Bunu. They haven't had him all year. So it was a great win. Couple it with the Vandy uh, win to open the SEC season. And Florida's 2-0 and heading to uh, Missouri this weekend for an early game Saturday. You mentioned Kavarius Hayes and the uh, the good performance he had against Dan M. He was also strong against Vanderbilt, and that's something we talked about at the end of the year, Chris, was how important it was going to be for him to step up for Florida because of their lack of post presence. What have you seen differently from him through these first two SEC games? Well, you said he was good in Vanderbilt. He was good in the first half against Vanderbilt. He wasn't very good in the second half, but nobody in Florida was really very good second half, especially on the, uh, on the defensive end I'm talking about. They're pretty good on offense, actually. Um, I'm going to chalk a little bit of this up to role identification. Going into the season, everyone knew Johnny Boone wasn't going to be here a while. Kavari Seesaw, Devin Robinson's not here anymore. Uh, obviously, Kenny Berry's not here. Justin Leon's not here. You're looking for – he's probably thinking, okay, I'm going to be I'm going to be a more productive offensive player. That's just the way basketball guys think. You know, he's 20 years old. That's, that's the way he thinks. Mm-hmm. Well, he's not really that kind of player. You don't go to him offensively. You go to him when he's open offensively, but you don't work through him offensively. And I think maybe he's getting a little better sense of what his identity is without those other guys around him. Last year with Devin Robinson and Justin Leon, he was kind of protected on the defensive end in some ways relative to his uh, deficiencies. I mean, he's he's quick to bite on head fakes, and he doesn't have the best feet in the world. But, you know, he is wildly athletic, and he's great when it comes to help side defense. But he was much, much, much more disciplined uh, playing against a really good guy in Tyler Davis and also playing against uh, Robert Williams in Texas A&M uh, Tuesday night. So I think maybe more than anything else, the last couple games, it's just maybe knowing who you aren't. How's that? Playing more to the to the player that he is, playing more to the identity that he is, and just accepting that. And, and if he keeps doing that, Florida's going to be a much, much better team for it. Yeah, as we saw against A&M and as we've seen a number of times this year, when Florida is hot, they can beat and probably will beat anybody in the country. I guess the question then, Chris, is how much is it still a focus right now of Mike White and his staff to make sure that they can find ways to win on nights that they don't hit a record number of threes as they did against A&M? The daily focus. It's all they talk about. I mean, it's well, it's the number one thing they talk about. Uh, he's very, very much in tune to that, Adam. And they know that there's going to be those games. Like, uh, what was the Florida State game? Four for 25. Mm-hmm. Uh, which started that whole uh, uh, downward spiral where Florida kind of lost. I mean, it was after the Duke loss, but they didn't play that poorly against Duke at all. Um, but that's when teams started figuring out a little different way to play them. But uh, uh, the defense has improved the last uh, game and a half. It was really good in the first half against Van, but really bad the second. It was good against Texas A&M. Uh, Texas A&M has limitations, like I pointed out before. But it's going to be a constant conversation. Um, they'd have to communicate better uh, Tuesday at Texas A&M was their best communication defense they've had. You could, you know, being in that arena, you could hear Kavari Hayes talking. You could hear Chris Chioza talking on defense. And that's really been a sore spot with Mike White and his coaches. I mean, they just started doing something last week where uh, they run uh, penalty sprints at the end of practice. One of the new ones is uh, the guy who communicates the best in practice uh, now gets, uh, I think, two sprints knocked off. That's something of an incentive. And uh, the fact that it's come to that is kind of sad. But at the same time, if it works, it's probably brilliant. So uh, uh, defense will be talked about, talked about, talked about. Mike White loves defense. That's that's who he was as a player at Ole Miss. Um, he'll tell you that. But he knows that this team is really, really has limitations on that end. And they can make up for it by playing better team defense and being more talkative and communicating better and, know, and knowing their 
be more assignment disciplined uh, on that side of the ball. I want to turn our attention to football here. And Scott, we've got a good streak going. I think the last five podcasts we've done every week, there have been new coaches added to the staff before our chat. And I'm happy to say the streak will continue because two more coaches have been added and, and some significant names as well in terms of experience and some pedigree uh, being added to Dan Mullen's staff. Yeah, as you said, I mean, it's he's rounded out his staff slowly but surely. And Adam, one of the guys who was rumored all along to come here was Greg Knox. Uh, he's been with Dan Mullen for nine years at Mississippi State, has also uh, coached at other stops in the SEC. And, you know, he had the tough job of uh, being the interim coach after Mullen came to Florida. Uh, he, he kept it together out there, even after uh, the Bulldogs hired a permanent coach uh, in Joe Moorhead to uh, replace Mullen. But he, he stepped aside and let Greg Knox, uh, you know, finish it out with the team. And they went over to Jacksonville and beat uh, Heisman Trophy winner Lamar Jackson in Louisville in the bowl game. And uh, if you haven't checked it out, there's a, a good video of him on uh, YouTube in the locker room afterward. Very emotional Greg Knox. And he gives you a little bit of a idea of what kind of coach he is, how he connects the players. And obviously uh, Mullen wanted him to come here with him if he would accept it. He did. And so now he's on board. I don't know his position yet, but, you know, he's, he's a guy that's coached special teams, uh, running backs. Uh, he'll, he'll have, uh, I'm sure, uh, some kind of role more likely on the offense. And then, of course, you look at Sal Sanceri. Talk about a guy landing quickly on his feet. Uh He's been with the Oakland Raiders on uh, Jack Del Rio's staff the last three years. And obviously with what's going on out in Oakland uh, lately with the rumors of John Gruden returning to coaching, Jack Del Rio got canned. Obviously, Sal Sanceri, a linebacker's coach, was looking for a job. And Dan Mullen jumped on him really quick because, again, here's a guy who has SEC experience, worked with Nick Saban at Alabama, defensive coordinator at Tennessee, has a lot of NFL experience with the Carolina Panthers and the Raiders. And this is what you call a coaching veteran. He's He's been in college game at a high level, coached the NFL. He's had success at a lot of different stops in his career. So adding the veteran voice like him, uh, huge for what's really, you know, a young Gators defense. Uh, a lot of players that need to be developed over there. So uh, South and Siri was a, a really good get uh, from a coaching hire perspective. You know, on our last podcast of 2017, we talked about a lot of the players that were leaving, guys who had declared for the draft. Uh, but now the focus is on the guys coming in, and that leads also to the Under Armour All-American game where we're going to see Emory Jones. This is a guy everyone's talking about, the potential new quarterback for Florida, and that will obviously be a focus of, of many fans. Yeah, no doubt. A lot of Florida fans will be watching that game. It's against some of the best high school players in the country, and Emory Jones, uh, there's talk that, hey, he could come in here with the quarterback situation and play his first year, or at least certainly compete for the job. And I think that's what uh, he has on his mind. I think that's probably what Dan Mullen is open to as well. I mean, he he went after him and turned him from Ohio State. Uh, So it's a big moment for uh, Emory Jones to kind of perform on a big stage, national TV, against the best prep competition in the country. A little primer for Florida fans. He's not the only Gator signing down there, Adam. Uh, uh, Trey Dean, a defensive back's down there, mm. so they'll, they'll get to look at him. And there's a couple more. One guy to watch uh, is Kyle Pitts, a tight end from uh, up in the Northeast, uh, just from talking to Jawan Sider, who was heavily involved in his recruiting. He considered him the top tight end available 
this recruiting class, and he's a he's a playmaker tied in, a, a, not a blocking tied in. He's a big guy he can get down the field. Jawan Sider really is excited to have him in the mix, uh, you know, with that position. Them losing DeAndre Goolsby, so he's a guy that fits in. So it'll be interesting to see how he looks out there. You know, things are pretty quiet uh, over the holidays since last time we spoke, but you guys did put out some some cool stories, and one of them that really struck me. Chris, what was your story on Lauren Evans from the soccer team and her uh, her sudden unexpected battle with leukemia? I'd encourage everyone to go to FloridaGators.com and read that story, but can you tell us a little bit about it and why that was important to you? We were at our uh, athletic association um, Christmas party, and I ran into Becky Burley and found out about the situation with uh, Lo Evans and the fact that she wasn't feeling well at the uh, NCAA tournament, the the game the Gators uh, ultimately lost at South Carolina. And she went there feeling okay, but she started feeling poorly around the time of their Thanksgiving dinner. Um, and she usually has quite an appetite, the way she explained it to me, and she just wasn't feeling well, and they lost the game. And they came home, and she went to the team doctor, and they thought maybe she had mono, thought maybe she was catching pneumonia, and yet they sent her to the hospital, and uh, some tests came back with some serious uh issues with her white uh, blood cell count and it turns out she had a, a form of leukemia and they caught it at a, at a really good time. Obviously, it was uh, devastating for Lowe and her family. Her father is Jerome Evans, who was starting fullback here for Steve Spurrier on the national championship team. Just a, a, a renowned blocker from that position. I think he only had, I want to say, maybe 12 carries during his career here, but was known as a great uh, protector of Danny Warfel during that time. But yeah, the family uh, uh, was crushed by that. But um, what struck me in talking to her and going to visit her at, at Shans was how upbeat and positive she was. And that's what Becky had told me. This is the most positive person she's ever been around. And that certainly came through in her, uh, her detailing to me, dealing with the nausea, dealing with the sickness. And, you know, for, she tweeted out when she found out, I'm going to kick cancer's ass. That was her New Year's resolution. <laughs> I got an incredible amount of responses from that story, um, which went out on Christmas Day. So people were paying attention to it, and she certainly is in the is in the thoughts and prayers of a lot of people, um, a lot of University of Florida fans. Not only that, but we were I was hearing from fans from other from other schools also. They were tweeting at her and what have you, and she was certainly in tune to that. And the early indications, from what I understand, are, are positive. They'll be monitoring that, but her goal is to be with the with the soccer team next year. And as uh, she says, it's going to be a hell of a story. And they spell hell H E L capital L O U V A hello buzz story. So uh, we'll pay attention to her progress as the in the coming months. Yeah, it's great to hear about that response. And Scott, you also put out some pretty big stories over the holidays. Tell us about a, the future. Florida sprinter that might be a name we all end up knowing very soon. Well, Adam, his name is Hakeem Sonny Brown, and uh, you're right. If you haven't heard of him, you're probably going to, certainly by the time the 2020 Summer Olympics rolls around. And what caught my attention for this was this reporter and photographer came over from Tokyo basically to hang out with uh, Sonny Brown here, who just started school at Florida in August, straight from Tokyo, straight from the uh, World Championships over the summer in London, where, uh, you know, he, he's been in the international spotlight for a while in the track world, but now he's at Florida. He's getting ready to start his uh, freshman season this spring. Uh, but anyway, these reporters, this reporter was over here from Tokyo, so I, I talked to him, like, hey, well, what brought you all the way over here? And he says, look, you know, back home, this guy is huge, and he's good. I mean, the expectations for him is 
he could be the face for Japan at the Olympics in Tokyo in 2020. So uh, mm. just a unique story, uh, someone that I'm really excited about seeing compete this spring for the Gators. And if you haven't heard from him or heard of him, you will. Uh, Mike Holloway, to be able to get this guy to Florida, that was a huge uh, recruiting coup for him. you got to remember, this is a guy who, when he was 15 years old, broke Usain's Bolt's uh, record in the 200 at the World Youth Championships. So wow. he comes with some pretty impressive credentials. And, uh, it'll be, you know, next stage is obviously to develop more and uh, be part of uh, the Gator program and also with an eye toward the Olympics. So, uh, again, just uh, looking forward to seeing him compete. No, really good stuff. And again, people should go to FloridaGators.com, read both of those stories from Scott and from Chris, in addition to the other things that they put out over the holidays. You may have been checked out, but now that you're plugged back into Gator Sports, do not miss those stories. Guys, let's wrap up with our PAT. It's kind of a two-pronged today related to the national championship, both the real one and a claimed one. So let's start with the faux national title. Uh, This is a really interesting story that came out this week that UCF is claiming that they are national champions. They've made a nice logo, which includes a peach on the O of national champions because they won the Peach Bowl beating Auburn. And they feel like they went undefeated. They did everything they needed to do and they beat Auburn, who was the number one team in the country at a time. So they're national champions. Uh, Is this cool is this dumb is this embarrassing i i'm I'm curious for your take on this i kind of like the fact it's irritating people because i'm a pretty irritating person so (laughs) uh they're kind of throwing it out there and it's bugging some people and so uh it's a hell of a marketing idea um they're doing a parade and everything they're doing national championship parade for themselves I mean, I think we all know that this isn't a national championship a legitimate national championship but at the same time if we were having a debate and and College football is is full of debates. Uh, you could lay out a case that uh, these guys are worthy of being considered for that. If if we were taking a poll at the end, if there wasn't a playoff to determine this whole thing, um, but I, I just think that the way they're doing it draws a lot more attention to it than if they were just gonna just they they're gonna say they're giving out undefeated rings and rent whatever the ranking is gonna be. I mean, I, I certainly think they deserve to be ranked um, maybe third in the country when it's all said and done. But uh, they can do whatever they want, and I'm sure they'll be ridiculed for it on a lot of fronts, but I guarantee the people at UCF and those fans in Orlando are going to have a hell of a time in the run-up to all this and actually in the actual celebration of it. You know, Adam, if you look at the history of college football, there's been a lot of mythical national championships. <laughs> Alabama's got I, a lot of them. Alabama has a lot. Tennessee has a few. Uh, it's, it's just part of the game's history. Uh, I'm like Chris. I think this is a great marketing idea for they went from 0 and 12 to 13 and 0 in right. two years. Hey, they should be excited. They should be happy. They have real reason to celebrate. Uh, the biggest thing that I'm happy about this getting attention is, again, we've talked about this before. It's just another eight teams. Just another to speed up the 18 playoff. We know it's coming. This is another reason why you need it. Uh, I would love to see. UCF play against Alabama and Georgia in two weeks for a national title. Uh, but at the same time, I totally uh, you know can see what they're doing. And if I was a UCF fan, I would celebrate this as long as I can. Go all in, man. They just lost Scott Frost, who I think <laughs> is a heck of a college football coach. And I don't know what he's going to do at Nebraska, but I, that guy earned a lot of respect for me just from he what he did on the football field, obviously getting the program to where it is. But I, I love the fact I thought he handled that whole transition about as well as you can. Mm-hmm. I just thought he showed a lot of class. You know what? 
that team had a lot of unity because there's a lot of programs that would have been in that same situation, and they would have not played against Auburn the way UCF did, and they would not have won that game. That took a lot of commitment on the coaches and the players' part. So, hey, let them celebrate. I think I read somewhere. I read on Twitter, so it must be true. <laughs> in 1941, Alabama finished 9-2 and two and was ranked 20th in the country, and that's one of their national championships they claimed. <laughs> Is it really? <laughs> I'm just saying I saw it on Twitter. So I, I, I may have to go to Wikipedia, which, of course, is, all, is 100% accurate. It was the national championship of the state of Alabama. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. And then finally, turning our attention to the game that will actually determine the national champion. It's Georgia. It's Alabama. A lot of people outside the South are not happy about it, but that's the way that it's shaken out. For the second time in the last seven years, two SEC teams will play for it all. I'm curious where you guys are going on this. Are you going with Georgia or are you going with Alabama? Boy, I mean, I'm still kind of tossing that around because I would have said Georgia at about 9 p.m. on, what, Monday night after the Georgia win over Oklahoma. But then the way Alabama came out and just really took care of Clemson, that was equally impressive. And I don't know, it's just hard for me in this stage to bet against Nick Saban in this kind of game, uh, going against Kirby Smart. He's 11-0 all-time against his assistants, and eventually one of those guys are going to break through. Sure. but And, you know, Georgia's going to – they'll probably have some kind of home crowd advantage, although Alabama fans are going to be right there too. It's just going to be a great game, I think. Probably going to come down to a, a big turnover or something because I see both defenses just being really good in this game. Uh, at the same time, if I had to pick one, I'm probably going to go with Alabama to win it. Nick Saban's the best. They lost last year at this stage. He remembers that. The players remember it. And even though, you know, there's going to be a lot of sentimental favor for Georgia to beat them, uh, I just think Alabama is going to find a way to win it. Yeah, they're healthy. They have some great defense players that weren't there toward the end of the season. Those guys are back. And um, how many points did Oklahoma score the other day? Uh, 45. Yeah, I don't think Georgia's going to get that many against this Alabama defense. No. So I I think they're going to find the going a little bit bit tougher. Alabama will like Up and down the field, yeah, yeah. Their defense looked scary the other night. Right. So uh, I'm with Scott. I'm going to Alabama. I think a big factor is that Saban lost that game, and uh, he's probably thinking about the Clemson game from last year right now. Put out a little poll thinking that, you know, Gator fans might actually root for Georgia because they're sick of Alabama. Surprisingly, a lot more people wanted more than double want Alabama to win the game over Georgia. That's how uh, hated Georgia is among the Florida faithful. That doesn't surprise me to hear that stat. What, what was the final number on your poll? Uh, last I looked, there's about 2,500 votes. I think about 43% wanted Bama to win, 21% wanted Georgia, and like 35% wanted to puke. <laughs> so that was that was where it stood. And that yes, I will. I wanted to puke was an option. So. <laughs> it was a very carefully thought out scientific poll, and uh, I know that the Gator Nation appreciates that. We'll call it the Scheidenfreud Bowl. <laughs> yes. yeah. Just root for an asteroid. There'll be books written about it. Yes. Yes. Uh, well, in any case, we appreciate you guys weighing in on that and on everything else, getting us back up to speed on what's going on inside and outside of Gator Nation. And we look forward to talking to you next week. Thank you, Adam. All right. Thank you, Adam. Happy New Year, my friend. While the men's basketball team had some peaks and valleys throughout non-conference play, the same is true of the women's squad under the first-year tutelage of Cam Newbauer. 
The Gators sported an 8-5 record at the end of December and have switched their focus to the rough and tumble of the SEC, which began on Sunday with a difficult loss at Auburn. We spoke to Coach Cam prior to the Gators' SEC home opener against Alabama to find out how his first season is progressing and began by asking what has pleased him most about his team's performance entering 2018. Before SEC play, we were eighth in the nation in threes per game, making uh, right around 10 three-point baskets a game and shooting like 36, 37 percent. Uh, and that's just a testament to how uh, much time our kids have devoted to, to shooting the ball in practice and improving their shot. Because last year, we hit a total of, I think, 110, 115 threes on the year. And before conference play, we already surpassed that. So I'm um, just seeing the growth in that respect. Uh, with running our offense and spreading the floor and sharing it and taking some good shots. And, you know, we within our first, what, seven, eight games, we broke the school record for threes twice with 15 and 17. Uh, we go out to Oklahoma and have a great game out there despite having 20-plus turnovers. And DeAndrea Anderson has a career night with 21 points and hits six of seven from three. Um, so just little things like that of, of seeing growth within our players and our program, uh, confidence improving within individuals and collectively as our team, and just trying to continue getting better as we prepare for the conference season. In terms of three-point shooting, those numbers are evident across the board. Is it just players in the gym, or is there something that you and your staff have done to work with them to help improve that three-point shooting? We shoot a lot in practice on a daily basis, so trying to help little things with technique, trying to keep their eyes on the rim, just keep them focused on stretching the floor and, and being able to knock down open shots when they're open, even you know, shooting behind ball screens, uh, transition threes. So just teaching them what we think are good shots and also understanding them that with that freedom of, of shot selection comes responsibility. And if you're going to take these shots, you need to work on these shots. So I think it's just uh, developing that relationship between them and us where they know that um, some of these shots that you take, that, that you have freedom to take, they better be ones you're practicing. And if not, then, you know, it's, it's given these young people autonomy to understand that they have a say in the matter, but also means they have responsibility in the matter as well. In terms of responsibility, I know part of that is also improving, and you're looking for a lot of that from your team. What areas through the first couple months have you really focused on in terms of improvement? We've tried to be a better passing team, and I think we've had moments where we've done a terrific job of sharing the space in the floor and making good decisions. But then we still have some growing pains here or there where we just really struggle, like our last game. And part of that is just having the experience of being in, in these situations where you're going to be pressed and going to be trapped a lot. And at the same time, we have a lot of players that are in completely different roles than they've ever been in, in their life. Uh, Drea Anderson uh, played a big role last year, but now we're asking her to score more and have the ball in her hands more. Um, Delisha Washington was SEC co-freshman of the year last year, um, but she was able to kind of feed off of Ronnie Williams and some other upperclassmen, whereas now, um, we're playing her as a point guard some, playing her off the ball and asking for more from her. Funa Nagasoglu, this is her first go-round at the SEC level. I'm asking her to do more. So you look at them, you look at Paulina Herschler, who's a grad transfer from UCLA, playing more minutes, you know, scoring more points and getting more rebounds than she ever has. So understanding that they're getting to play a lot, but still they've never been through this. They've never been through the gauntlet of an SEC season. So having the patience and, and understanding that the confidence is going to be bred every day through success and through failure, 
and just understanding that it's going to take us time and it's a process and really embracing the process, even when the process stinks. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned a bunch of players who've had to find different roles and two of them in Paulina and Funda, they're both transfers in their first season on the court. And yet they're your, your two leading scorers. So what have you seen from them that's allowed them to really ingratiate themselves and become such important players on the court, despite this being their first year? Their overall skill set is what's helped us the most. It's helped us spread the floor a little more than what we were able to. You know, before we got Paulina, it gives us a forward that can really stretch the floor in some depth. Um, Funda's ability to really stretch it with the dribble um, behind ball screens, off of ball screens, and also has a, a pretty good ability to get into the paint and score at the rim. You know, so from a skill standpoint, it really makes us that much deeper um, skill-wise in terms of spreading the floor and, and giving other people driving opportunities. Um, and also just their basketball IQ, because they both have a pretty good basketball IQ that's definitely helped us a lot as well. You've talked a lot about the importance of finding consistent leadership. I know that that's an ongoing process. Where are you now on that front as you move into the SEC? Uh, kind of at the same point where we've got leaders being developed every day with, with their actions, but they still are learning how, how big of an impact their actions are. Um, until you're in a, a leadership role where you're one of the main people that, that the team goes to and that people come to for advice and that the coaches rely on, it's still that process of learning and understanding uh, what your body language does, what, what that conveys to the rest of the team when you're frustrated with yourself, what the right timing of encouragement or, or chew and tail and when to give that. So I think it's one of those things where it's the ongoing process because, once again, uh, we don't have any leaders this year that have been leaders their entire career. So it's still trying to help them learn how to be the best leaders they can be for our program. And what I've been most proud about is the vulnerability and the authenticity that they've displayed. Uh, they haven't been afraid to say, look, guys, I'm doing my best and I'm not perfect at this. And just our team coming together and communicating more through tough times and tough decisions um, and just really trying to develop the culture in that locker room first. Your depth was already an issue coming into the year. And then you lost Sidney Morang on top of that early how have you managed that challenge, and how do you continue to deal with that as you move through the gauntlet of the SEC? Yeah, we had minor setbacks early. We had a, a walk-on in Corey Staples that was going to play extended minutes, we thought, for us, and she tore her ACL on the first day of practice. And then Sydney Morang ends up having a, a couple concussions in the preseason and is done for the year. So, uh, you know, those things happen throughout the course of a season. And you just have to be prepared for the next man to step up and, and be available. And through doing so, you know, Sydney Searcy has stepped up. She hit three threes all of last year and had a game this year where she hit six. So Sid's done a good job of really stepping into a, a greater role than I think anybody maybe anticipated her having. And uh, she's embracing that and trying to be better in, uh, each day and trying to grow and mature more in her IQ of the game. You know, and then off the bench after that, um, you know, it's kind of a crapshoot where uh, a leaf might give us some minutes here or there. Tamaria might give us some minutes. And then at the forward with Jalasha and Michaela, uh, different days, different people have stepped up and, and given us some good minutes. And that's just one of those ongoing processes as well, because those are players that don't have very much experience. And, and this is a tough, tough conference. And so we've tried to set practice up to where uh, it's hard enough going against our practice guys to where it kind of simulates a game best we can to help prepare them as best possible. 
You've obviously been a head coach for a while, and, and you've been a part of programs in the SEC as an assistant. Is there anything that's surprised you so far about this job and this challenge that you've undertaken? Um, I, I think just you can't assume anything when you take over a program. We had uh, the injuries. You know, you put in your head what you think the picture can look like for the season, um, and then you have some disciplinary issues where you end up uh, – releasing someone from the program you have some injuries that happen and before you know it in the snap of your fingers everything changes in a second and so you can fool with yourself mentally where you kind of think all right we got a chance at at really uh doing something special this year and so you kind of build yourself up thinking that and then next thing you know it changes and so you got to be prepared for just morphing and adapting at all times and uh, the players have to understand that as well because uh, injuries can disappoint them as well because you know they, they care for each other a lot. They care for their teammates, and when one of them goes down, they're not going to be playing. It sends a shockwave through the program where now the, the, those players that didn't think they were going to play as much, and all of a sudden they're, they're thrown to the fire, and they've got to play harder. They've got to practice more. They've got to spend more time in the gym. They've got to be ready to really contribute to the team maybe earlier than they anticipated. So it's kind of the same from a player standpoint and a coach's standpoint that you can't put the buggy before the horse. Mm-hmm. You just have to be diligent in your work every single day and focus on each moment, each possession of being the best you can and, and just doing what you can and controlling those controllables and letting the results take care of themselves. You know, coaches are often very coy or they hold back when speaking publicly, but you, on the other hand, are incredibly upfront and you're very honest when it comes to your team. I'm curious at what point you decided that was going to be your approach. Was that a concerted effort or, or is that just that it's just who you are? I think it's who I am. A lot of times, you know, I speak my mind and I'm very open and honest. I do the same with recruiting. Um, I like to be an open book. I'm emotional in front of our team. I'll cry in front of our team. I always like showing our, our team how being authentic and vulnerable and just open to show people who you are. What, what that can do for the community and for your program. And uh, I don't consciously think of that. I just kind of act on it. And for instance, we're on our, our trip to Auburn the other day. We're, we're driving back from shoot-around. All of a sudden, I look over on the bus near our hotel, and we see this house with the Florida flag. So I, I immediately run up to the, to the bus driver, and I said, hey, uh, can you turn the bus around, please? And the guy's like, sure, no problem. And so we turned the bus around. I told him, I said, hey, will you stop right here, please? And I said, all right, all right, everybody, let's go. And so we get off the bus, and as we start walking, everybody sees this is the Florida flag. And so I said, all right, I said, we're, we're going to these people's house. <laughs> and we walk up to the door, and we ring the doorbell, and this guy stands up. And he comes to the door, and he flies open the door, and he yells, go Gators. <laughs> and he's like, come on in, come on in. And uh, he invites the entire, all 30-some of us into the house, oh, wow. him and his wife taking pictures with us. Next thing you know, he shows up at the game, sends me a text, sends me an email saying all our neighbors were coming out wondering what was going on. They were so jealous that their teams have never done anything like this. And you know, it was the last day of 2017. You made our new year. This is just awesome. And to me, doing things like that, I think, brighten, brightening people's days. We've got a platform uh, one of the best institutions in the country to play sports. And uh, it's our job to build that. It's our job to build this brand that we have. And I think doing things like that and just having fun and meeting people um, and being real is part of who I am. And it's part of how I want our program to be. And I think we're doing it. 
Final thing for you, Cam, as you move into the SEC, I know you've already started and it's going to get even tougher going forward. What are you trying to get the team to focus on the most? Just being tougher. Just every moment being tougher mentally, physically, emotionally, and just staying locked in with us. We talk about all the time that it's about us. It's not about what anybody else is doing. It's not about what they're going to run. And letting go of all the noise, letting go of what everybody else thinks and says, and just focusing on being a little better each moment. And I think if we do that, we'll be happy with the result. But sometimes we just grasp too tightly to the results before doing the work and before staying focused on on what we can control. And so I think that's just the mindset, the we over me, selfless attitude, that when things get tough to focus on someone else. Because when you do that, I think you end up hearing and seeing what you need yourself and you end up feeling better and probably get out of your rut that you're in. So that's the biggest thing we're trying to instill this year. Well, Cam, we wish you a lot of luck. We want people to get out and support you. I know you guys have your SEC home opener on Thursday night. So we encourage people to get out to the O-Dome and certainly going forward, come see the Gators. And uh, we hope things go well for you. Adam, I appreciate it so much. And uh, it's been a blessing to be part of you know, the Gator Nations, it's the best in the country, best fan base, best people, best administration, best university, and just so blessed to be part of this. And Happy New Year to everybody, and I wish you all the best in 18, and go Gators. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice, and please leave a review to help us continue to grow. Tune in to see men's basketball travel to Missouri on Saturday at 1 o'clock Eastern on CBS and the Gator IMG Sports Network. Then come back on Thursday afternoon as we break it all down in a brand new episode. Until then, I'm Adam Schick, and I'll see you at Exact Tech Arena.